Come gather round the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. I'm going to go back to a show that I got hooked on. I know I always do shows. I know I always do shows. I apologize, people. This show I really like, though, because I'm really envious of people who have the ability to solve crime with psychic ability. <laughs> I know so, you you love that. I love that. I would love to have that superpower. Oh, that'd um, be so hard so to yes, go with all that. That's why I decided to do this story. <laughs> So here we go. On uh, December 11th, 1978, a teenage young man by the name of Robert Peast was just getting off work at a drugstore in the town that he lived. His mother was waiting for him out in the car. Robert went to his mother's car and told her that he may have a job offer for summer work. He just had to go around the corner to talk to the man that was offering him this job. Robert said he will be right back. And with that, Robert disappeared around the corner of the store. His mother continued to wait for Robert to return, but he did not. Eventually, she goes behind the corner of the store to look for Robert, but he is not there and the parking lot is empty. Oh, I thought you were going to say he was doing a drug deal. (laughs) No. (laughs) That's where my mind went. (laughs) She immediately files a missing person report. Lieutenant Joe Kozensack picks up the missing person case and starts to look for Robert Peast. He talks to friends and family to see if Robert maybe ran away, but he finds no indication that that was the case. Missing person flyers are put up all over town and fear grips the community. Finally, Kozensack turned to the man that Robert had claimed to go talk to in the parking lot just before he disappeared. The man that Robert went to meet was a construction contractor that the drugstore had hired to do some work around the store. Kozensack looks into the contractor's background and finds that he was a model citizen, a family and church-going man. However, he did have a prior arrest for a violent sexual assault. The police go to the contractor's home to interview him, but once the contractor finds out that the officers do not have a search warrant, he becomes very angry and he asks them to leave. He said that he did not see Robert Peace to that night and has no idea what happened to the boy. But the cops do feel like that he is lying. Yeah. The next day, the police return back to the contractor's house with a search warrant. When they search his home, they find ID cards for other young men, jewelry and belt buckles and other things that do not belong to the contractor. They also find sex toys, sex books and pornography in his home. Still, they really didn't have enough evidence to arrest him for the disappearance of Robert Peast. Lieutenant Kozensack knew this was the guy that was guilty in the missing persons case of Robert Peast. He just couldn't prove it. He was at a dead end. Then a fellow officer suggested Kozensack try a psychic in the investigation. Skeptical, Kozensack asked his boss if he should do that. The Robert Peace case was getting a lot of media attention, and he was worried what the public perception would be if they started working with a psychic. His boss told him to give it a shot, but just to keep it on the down low. So Kozensack called a woman named Carol Broman, who was known as a psychic investigator. Carol had worked with police in several cases and was well-respected in the field. Carol could perform psychometry. Psychometry is when you get psychic information by holding an object that is personal to a person. 
Coz and Zach showed up at Carol's house, not sure what he was getting himself into. They went into Carol's library and shut the door. Coz and Zach handed Carol Robert Peace's camera. As she touched the camera, her demeanor changed. Carol said she was getting sick to her stomach and she could feel some kind of torture happening. Then she flatly said, he isn't alive. Oh. Kozensack felt chills go through his body. Carol then tells Kozensack that there is a construction site in relation to this man, the killer. She said he asked Robert to come back and meet him somewhere and that Robert was tricked into going with him. She then says that Robert doesn't know that he's actually dead. Then she said something that turned Kozensack's blood cold. Carol said, this guy, the killer, is really, really sick. You are going to find six to seven others in the same place. They are all buried. Whoa. Kozensack was stunned. He thought he was just on a missing persons case, but suddenly the psychic was telling him he is actually on a serial killer case. Due to Carol's prediction that the guilty man is in construction, Kozensack and the rest of the police force put the construction contractor under 24-hour surveillance and deep dive into his past. They started interviewing former employees of the contractor to find out more about him. However, what they find is that they can't reach all of his former employees because some of them have disappeared. And stranger still, a lot of these missing people match the ID cards found in the contractor's home during the first search. Meanwhile, the contractor is fully aware that he is under police surveillance and doesn't seem to mind one bit. He invites the police inside his home for dinner. Once inside his house, one officer noticed a strange smell coming from the man's basement. Two days later, the surveillance officers caught the contractor selling marijuana to another man, so they arrested him for selling drugs. While they have him in custody, they get a second search warrant for his home. They enter his house and go to the basement first. Two evidence technicians jump down into the basement crawl space inside the home. A few minutes later, they call up to Lieutenant Kozensack. We've already found three bodies buried in the dirt, they say. Kozensack said, oh my God, it's true. Everything she said is true. The police immediately charged the contractor with multiple murders. The contractor's name is John Wayne Gacy. Most of you have heard of John Wayne Gacy yeah. and know who he is. But for those of you who don't know... Gacy was a serial killer located in the city of Chicago, Illinois in the 1970s. He raped and murdered 33 young men and boys and then buried most of them in the basement of his home, with three of his victims being buried in other locations on his property and four of the victims he threw in the Des Plaines River. He was known as a killer clown due to the fact that he would dress up in clown outfits and perform at children's birthday parties. <laughs> he was married twice and up. yeah. He was married twice and had two children. He was also a prominent member of the Democratic Party and heavily involved in politics, even having his photo taken with First Lady Rosalind Carter. Gacy's method of operation was to lure his victims to his home under false pretenses, then show him his trick handcuffs. As he was showing him how to get the cuffs off and on, Gacy would trigger a mechanism that would lock the handcuffs so his victims couldn't get them off. After he had them in this vulnerable position, he would rape, torture, and murder his victims, usually by asphyxiation or by strangulation with a garret. At the time of his arrest, Gacy was considered to be the most prolific serial killer in the United States. He was executed by lethal injection on May 10, 1994. The police eventually find 27 bodies in Gacy's basement, but of all the bodies they recovered, the one body that started the whole investigation into Gacy was not among them. Robert Peace was not in John Wayne Gacy's basement. 
The police go back to Psychic Carol to see if she can tell where Robert's body is, but she is unable to find him. They then turn to Gacy himself to find out what he did do to Robert. Gacy tells the police that he did kill Robert and that he threw his body into the Des Plaines River. The police search the river, but Robert is not found. They aren't quite sure if they will find Robert's body as the river current could have taken it far downstream. They are delayed searching the river again when winter sets in and the river freezes over. That is when Elizabeth Peast, Robert's mother, reads an article about a psychic that finds missing bodies. Her name is Dorothy Allison. Dorothy was a very prominent psychic and worked with the FBI. Elizabeth reached out to Lieutenant Kozensack and asked him to request that Dorothy help find her son's body. After his experience with Carol Broman, he thought it would definitely be worth a shot. He reaches out to Dorothy by phone. Dorothy lives in New Jersey, nowhere close to Chicago. She immediately tells Kozensack where Robert's body is. But despite his newfound faith in psychics, Kozensack is still somewhat skeptical of Dorothy and her information. Dorothy tells Kozensack Robert's body is located near an area where you can smell petroleum oil, there is a manor motel nearby, and a cemetery named the Evergreen Cemetery. These are very specific landmarks, and Kozensack is very impressed. But what could this woman know? She lives all the way in New Jersey. <laughs> wow. I know. You know what is interesting to me? I, I didn't know um, Casey had his own kids. Yeah, two kids. That is crazy. I hope they change their names so no one can yeah, I connect the dots. Yeah, I wonder what effect all this had on those two kids I and, and what happened to them. I'd right, like to hear their story. That would be interesting. Maybe there's a YouTube channel out there that explores yeah, that. Yeah, that's news to me. I, because I didn't know that. I know that um, BTK, that serial killer from Kansas, his daughter is always in the public eye talking about her dad and how fucked up he is. Oh, my <laughs> yeah. God. That's some... Yeah. That would That's be, a hard childhood there. That would be a hard cross to bear, yeah. especially, yeah. Though she gave him very specific landmarks that still didn't help Kozensack locate Robert. So he asked Dorothy to fly out to Chicago to help him. In March, Dorothy flies out to Chicago. Kozensack picks her up at the airport. As they drive, Dorothy tells him where to go. She tells him what roads to take, and as they drive, they can smell the petroleum oil in the tanks all along the freeway. Then she tells Kozensack to take another exit off the freeway. When they exit, they see the Manor Motel. To the left of the hotel was the Evergreen Cemetery. Dorothy then asks Kozensack to stop the car. The two of them get out, and Dorothy walks over to the riverbank and points. She turns and looks at Kozensack and says, There, that's where you will find him. But it's March, and the river is still frozen over. There is no way to search for Robert at this time. Dorothy then pulls out a piece of paper and writes on it and hands it to Kozensack. Here, she says, this is the day you will find him. What? Yeah. Kozensack takes the paper and he puts it into Robert Peace's file, puts it in his desk drawer, and forgets about it. The following month, Kozensack gets a very interesting phone call. The sheriff called him and said they found a body floating down the banks of the Des Plaines River. It was Robert. When Kozensack went to the spot where his body had been discovered, he recognized the area because it was the same area he had been to with Dorothy Allison. The body of Robert Peace was delivered back to his family for burial. That afternoon, when Kozensack returned to his office, he pulled out his Robert Peace file. When he opened the folder, he sat aghast. Sitting on top of his papers was the note that Dorothy Allison had left him. The date she had written on the paper... April 9th, 1979, was that very day they found Robert's body. She was right about where he would be found and when. Lieutenant Kozensack was dumbfounded. 
Unfortunately, both Dorothy Ellison and Carol Broman have passed away. But thanks to these two women and their incredible work, they were able to help police catch one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. I'm kind of of the belief that, you know, I think everybody probably has psychic abilities. It's just a matter of knowing how you get that information and then also um, really working and training that gift. Yeah. And it would be really kind of cool to find out, you know, what their background is, how they knew they were psychic. A lot of that information, especially when they're able to locate dead people, comes from their own brush with death. Right. It somehow lifts the veil for them that yeah. they're able then to sense that. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's it's a very prevalent thing. So, no, a fascinating story. Yeah. Very interesting. The, if you go on YouTube and you type in psychic investigators, mm-hmm. a lot of those episodes are on YouTube and they're wow. cool. And in one of them I was watching, this was kind of a cool part, um, that one of the things I like is the way the different psychics, because there's lots of different psychics on these different episodes, yeah, and the way they describe how they get their information. And one psychic said that when she's tuning in to somebody who's missing, she goes, if I pick up on their energy and it's a, like a low vibrational frequency, she goes, I know they're still alive. But if it's high pitched, I know they're dead. To have that kind of ability, I can see how way, it would be it makes a, sense. a difficult gift to have because mm-hmm. you probably are seeing things you don't want to see. Yeah. But your ability to help families and police solve crimes like that and it's victims. Very meaningful. Yeah. It's pretty cool. So anyway, that's my psychic investigator story. I loved it. And everyone knows, I think most people know who John Wayne Gacy is. And mm-hmm. I thought it would be fun to tell everybody that these psychic women help to catch him. I think that's incredible. Yeah. They don't get enough credit. They sure don't. They're a lot in the behind of them the scenes. just are wackery doodle. Yeah, wackadoodle. Crap. Wackadoodle. Wack- <laughs> wackadoodle. So what do you have for us, Carol? Well, thanks. Um, today, my story is about the very haunted and mysterious Dakota building Located in, again, New York City. New York. Yeah, I found this one when I was researching the other one in New York City. This infamous building was built between 1880 and 1884 in a growing district where row houses were under construction. And it was centered to the Museum of Natural History and the Central Park, which had become a major tourist attraction. Edward Cabot Clark, who owned the Singer Sewing Machine Company, mm-hmm. funded the building and came up with the name Dakota because he was fond of New Western territories. He chose the architectural firm of Hardenburg, which also built the Plaza Hotel, the beautiful Waldorf Astoria, and the Empire State Building. From its first imagined design, the Dakota was meant to be for the wealthiest elite. The courtyard was for private use only, and deliveries were made in a hidden turnaround just under the courtyard. Being influenced with styles of German Gothic, French Renaissance, and even Victorian embellishments, Clark had spent over $25,000 per unit for each apartment. That's a lot of money back then. That is a lot. Which featured as many as four bathrooms, 14-foot elevated ceilings, and enormous spacious rooms. Hmm. The flooring was made of marble, and the building had fine touches of hand-carved wood. The 65 apartments in total had about 150 employees in service to the residents. There was even a dedicated horse stable nearby, a club, and an office for the coachmen and grooms. The Dakota also had a playroom, a gymnasium, private croquet lawns, 
private gardens, and tennis courts. It was basically a world in and of itself. Sounds like it. Club Med or something. It is like Club Med in New York City. The Dakota has had a very exclusive list of residents, each spending millions of dollars for impeccable service and privacy. The most expensive Dakota apartment sold for $21 million. Wow. Yeah. Notable residents have been Lauren Bacall, Leonard Bernstein, Lillian Gish, Rosemary Clooney, Roberta Flack, Boris Karloff, Judy Garland, Gilda Radner, and John Lennon. All the celebrities. Mm-hmm. And if the building name doesn't ring a bell, perhaps you remember that John Lennon was murdered, shot to death outside his residence. That was the Dakota. Lennon moved into the Dakota in April of 1973, and both he and Yoko Ono were living in a lavish apartment there at the time of his murder. The building's notoriety didn't come from its A-list residence and luxury, but from its attachment to tragedy and hauntings. Mm. It was the movie backdrop and set for the filming of the 1968 movie, Rosemary's Baby. I know a few Rosemary babies. <laughs> Your sister. Yeah, my sister, her babies. <laughs> but she, I bet she, I'm just kidding, you guys. You're not I, evil. I bet she was really happy when that movie came out. She's like, thanks, Mom, for Great. naming me Rosemary. <laughs> As a memory jogger, this classic horror movie tells the tale in which a woman named Rosemary Woodhouse played by actress Mia Farrow, realizes as the scene plays out that she is carrying in her womb the devil's spawn. <laughs> the Dakota was perfect with its moody gothic style to convince the viewer of the dark activities and the witches who lived there. We have all heard that horror movies tend to be cursed, and in most cases, this might just be a publicity stunt. But it can't be denied all of the coincidences and tragedy, though, that seem to have followed the production of this movie, affecting almost all of the cast members and those associated with it. Really? One of, yeah, one of the most heinous crimes in American history also shares a strange connection with the movie. Polanski, who directed the film, originally wanted his own wife, actress Sharon Tate, to play the role of Rosemary. However, it was actress Mia Farrow that ended up with the role. Coincidentally, though, Sharon Tate became pregnant and played just a bit of a character part in the background party scene in the movie. A year after the movie was released, Sharon Tate and her unborn baby was murdered, along with her four friends by the Manson family. It was a horrendous crime, and yet the curse of the movie would continue to haunt other cast members as well as Polanski himself. He was accused of drugging and sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl. He served 42 days in jail and then fled the country to avoid further charges and jail time. Polanski has been a fugitive ever since, unable to return to the States. There are also uncanny ties to the movie and the building. John Lennon wrote the song Helter Skelter on his White Album, and Manson had used the song as inspiration for his revolution and targeted attacks. It's weird how all that comes together. It all like intertwines. It's That's so weird. bizarre. Yeah. I really went deep in this yeah. research. Yeah. Lennon was friends with actress Mia Farrow at the time, and it was later revealed that the Manson family left a bloody message saying, Helter Skelter on one of the walls where the murder took place. Yeah, that's right. Huh. Yeah, the film's composer, Christoph Kamadon, also had a very strange tragedy. He suffered a fatal head and spinal injury just a few months after completing the work on the film. Kamadon was at a party in drunk stupor and fell off the edge of a cliff. He was in a coma until finally passing away. 
it couldn't be dismissed as anything but eerily uncanny because his tragedy mirrored the character Hutch, Rosemary's friend in the movie, who died in the same similar manner. Really? Is that bizarre? That is weird. Huh. Mia Farrow didn't escape tragedy either, although for her it was more emotional, less deadly than Commandant's. At the time of filming, Mia was married to Frank Sinatra, who was also acting in a different movie project. The Detective filmed in Los Angeles. Sinatra wanted Mia to also appear in his film, and they argued over her wanting to take the lead role in Rosemary's Baby. Perhaps it was the separation or maybe the influence of the Dakota building, but Mia Farrow was served divorce papers on set as she was in the middle of her filming Rosemary's Baby. Wow. That is so rude. It sent her spiraling from confusion as it seemed an extreme reaction from Sinatra. Wow. Mia was making every effort to fly back and forth from New York City to Los Angeles every week trying to do both films. I've heard Frank Sinatra was kind of a dick. I kind of heard that yeah. too. Like he comes first or yeah, you're all, nobody. Yeah, he, he definitely had everything revolving around him. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't sit, do what he said, well... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. too bad. And he probably didn't like the fact she had a big starring role. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Maybe so. he felt threatened by it. Mm-hmm. Huh. The co-producer of Rosemary's Baby, Robert Evans, who rose to fame after the release of the film, also seemed plagued with health issues and crime. He was linked to an execution-style killing of Roy Radin at the Cotton Club, suffered multiple strokes, and was arrested for cocaine trafficking. In 1993, he commented in an interview with the New York Times that he had a horrific 10 years and would often cry himself to sleep. Oh, my God. The other producer, William Castle, also had health problems right after the movie release. Castle was rushed into surgery to relieve kidney stones. And during the surgery, it was claimed he cried out odd remarks as Hmm. if he was hallucinating scenes from the movie. Really? (laughs) Right. That's crazy. In one instance, he shouted, Rosemary, for God's sake, drop that knife. (laughs) Wow. Could you imagine if you're like operating on somebody and they're like screaming out about somebody killing them? And what happens if the doctor's name is Rosemary and you've got a scalpel in your hand? And you have a scalpel and you're like, but I need to get this out of your bag. Operate. Yeah. (laughs) That would freak me out. He later wrote of his experience with the movie that he no longer cared for fame. At home, he said he was very, very frightened of Rosemary's baby. Really? Castle survived his ordeal, but despite his talent, his movie career was doomed. Mm. He never produced another hit. Wow. Now, Rosemary's baby was based on writer Ira Levin's novel. It became a bestseller, but soon after the film was released, tragedy also struck his life. He became the target of attacks and smears by religious organizations who claimed he was doing the work of the devil. Well, he is. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Levin said he never believed in witches or Satan. But in later interviews, he admitted that he had become terrified at the negative energies and all of the evil directed to him. And probably like watching what's happening to everyone around him that sure, worked on the movie. Sure, I bet he was a little freaked out. Yeah. 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 And just like Mia Farrow, his wife also left him the year the film was released. Mm. 30 years later, his sequel, Son of Rosemary, was a complete flop. I didn't know there was a sequel. I know that shows you how much yeah. of a flop it was. I didn't either. Yeah. Huh. It is hard to say if the subject matter of the movie 
or the Dakota building itself was responsible for the supposed curse. But I think it might be more the direct result of bad choices Mm. and values from Mm. a lot of these people. However, the Dakota has many stories of the paranormal. Besides bringing misfortune to those who live there, it has rumors of secret passageways and underground tunnels. Early residents were thought to meet up for clandestine meetings and perhaps other dark purposes. Residents who have lived at the Dakota have reported seeing everything from full-body apparitions to ghosts and UFOs while living in the Dakota building. In 1965, while they were setting up for the filming of Rosemary's Baby, the production crew encountered a ghost of a young boy walking through the halls. They described him as being about 10 years old with an old, musty odor. This same boy was seen on different floors of the building after the incident by many witnesses. Workers who were painting the hall one day saw a girl with blonde hair and a dress in an early time period playing with a toy ball. When inquiring about the girl, none of the guests could identify her as a family connection. A woman who lived in the building claimed she often saw her walking through a room, but later it was discovered the room was just a closet. The same little boy ghost was also seen by another crew of painters who tried to do some repair work in a former apartment that was owned by Judy Holliday. One of the painters saw a young ghost of a boy in a Buster Brown suit, which is a style of clothing back in the 1990s. The workers experienced doors slamming and light switches and bulbs shutting off. One guy propped his ladder in an effort to keep the door open and turned the lights back on, but he felt someone grab his arm and put it against the light bulb. It freaked him out so much he fled that day and never returned to the building. The Weinsteins also resided in the Dakota building on the third floor and reported hearing footsteps and noises in their home when no one else was there. In the dining room, they had rugs and chairs sliding around all by their own. Mr. Weinstein looked up to his apartment window and saw a gorgeous new chandelier hanging from the living room. Assuming his wife purchased it and had it installed, he proceeded just to go about his day and thought nothing of it until later when he came back home and saw that there was no chandelier in his living room and nobody had been home during the day. The most haunted part of the Dakota is the basement, where witnesses have seen the most activity. Tenants have had experiences with things being thrown at them, and the porter claimed to have a heavy snow shovel come flying off the wall aimed at hitting him. A ghost has also been seen of a short man with a long nose and mustache wearing glasses. (laughs) Some think he resembles the builder of the Dakota, Edward Cabot Clark. Now, Cabot did die before it was finished, and he had expressed his desire to one day live there himself. But I wonder, Holly, why would it be that he would choose to live in the gross basement? (laughs) Well, maybe he can't find his way out of the basement. Yeah, with all the secret passageways. He's trapped down there. Mm -hmm. Stuck. He's like, who's doing these nefarious things in my building? And he went down there to investigate, can't come back. Now I can't get out. It's like a a rat in a maze. Mm -hmm. Can't find the cheese. I like that theory. Mm. The most famous ghost being seen is John Lennon himself, who made headlines December 8th, 1980, when a devout but crazy fan, Mark David Chapman, unloaded a gun and shot Lennon five times on the very steps of the Dakota. Several residents have reported seeing him ascend and descend the stairs to the building, and his wife, Yoko Ono, recalled that one day she saw her husband at his piano when he turned around and said to her, Don't be afraid. I'm still with you. 
Oh, really? Isn't that sweet? That's very sweet. Others have seen Lennon walking in front of the archway. One couple saw him at the same time, and they both agreed it was Lennon and said there was a glowing aura all around him. Hmm. Excited to approach him, though, they held back because his gaze and the strange glow gave them a very unsettled feeling. Even before his own death, John Lennon commented on seeing a ghost in the Dakota describing a young woman with curly hair walking down the halls and crying. He claimed that he often saw her and she wore outdated clothing. Lennon nicknamed her the crying lady. So historians say that they think the woman was the like manager of the building. Okay. And she had a young son. Mm -hmm. And so they think, well, maybe that boy that everybody's been seeing is the ghost of her son. Mm -hmm. Well, one day her son went out and got hit, mowed down by a truck passing. Yeah. And so they probably are both trapped there. Mm. And that's why she's walking around grieving. Mm, It's captured that moment in her grief state, in her grief state for all of time. Yeah. And so other people have also witnessed the same lady. Mm -hmm. And um, but yeah, so Lennon nicknamed her the crying lady. Okay. Some people say the negative energy or curse from the building was amplified with John Lennon's connection to the movie and his own deal with the devil. I went down the rabbit hole in researching this building and came across a book called The Lennon Prophecy written by Joseph Nagoda, who theorizes that John Lennon prophesied his own death through various comments, album symbology, and lyrics he made in his songs. Before he passed, his last known comment to Paul McCartney seemed to point to a permanent goodbye. According to Linda McCartney, Lennon said, quote, Think about me every now and then, old friend. End quote. The author states that the instant fame the Beatles achieved was anything but normal. It was well known that John had commented he would do anything to become more famous than Elvis, and he was quoted as saying, One day, by one means or another, We'll have a record in the charts. If we have to be bent or con people, then that's what we do to get there. Hmm. It doesn't matter what it takes to get to the top. It might cause some heartache, but once I'm up there, it'll be a different kettle of fish. I wonder what it is about fame that people are attracted to. Yeah. They just don't understand. Like, yeah, you get a lot of money and everybody wants to be your friend, but I think there's more downsides to it than upsides. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't have any privacy left. No, and everybody around you is fake. They just want to be in your spotlight or they want to use you somehow or, yeah, yeah, it would be terrible not knowing who you can trust and who's really there for you. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't like that. Yeah, and if if you did have any struggles that you were trying to deal with, it would just come out in the public. People would just sell yeah. you out. Yeah. And then you'd have to deal with negative things being said about you. Like it just would be too much. I wouldn't like it. Yeah. Well, did John Lennon sign a contract with the devil in December of 1960? The author explores this possibility, hmm. saying he went out on the bridge of Rose Lane to exchange 20 years of fame for his soul. He points to a particular event on Tuesday, December 27th, 1960, in Litherland Town Hall in England. The Beatles created a response in the crowd unlike anything they had witnessed before. Pete Best was the drummer at the time, and he said that he could not remember anything special or unusual that they did that night regarding their performance. Their previous concerts had garnered positive feedback, but nothing that denoted they were destined for greatness. However, something remarkable did happen that night. When a crowd of teenagers all together in a spellbound state 
came rushing to the stage, screaming in hysteria, much like someone having a manic episode. (laughs) But music in general does have that kind of power. Mm -hmm. We've seen that with people at concerts. Sure. But that night marked the turning point and quick ascent of the Beatles' fame and fortune. The author examines each of the Beatles' albums and lyrics, proving the countdown they all knew was faded and disturbing descent into obsession with death. He believes that Lennon knew when his contract would be fulfilled. The Butcher cover album shows the group among dismembered babies with arms, legs, and heads everywhere and raw meat thrown around. It was actually banned in the United States. He states that the next album, Revolver, pointed to how Lennon would meet his fate. The original title was Abracadabra, a nod to spells and magic. In subsequent albums, there are supposed occult symbology and messages heard when playing the songs backward. Lennon was obsessed with the number nine and loved numerology. In one reversed recording, fans seem to hear a voice stating, I won nine, he die. John seemed to abruptly turn against Christianity also at one point, and then at different times in his life would seek after mystical experiences. In one of his final songs in the 1980s, it seems Lennon talks about the angel of destruction and how he never really left God. He even pleads for God's help. I haven't read the book yet, but numerous reviews have stated the author does a great job building the case for the selling of Lennon's soul. (laughs) (laughs) If if, If not an outright signed contract, certainly he presents a lot of evidence for the Beatles' involvement in darker aspects of the occult. Even the way in which Lennon was shot was that of a man who knew his fate. He did not try to run or plead with the killer as Mark Chapman kneeled before him with the gun pointed upward to his face. It was later revealed at the court trial that Chapman believed he was possessed because he had been hearing a voice in his head pestering him to kill Lennon. Hmm. Even at the moment of approaching Lennon, Mark heard the voice egging him on, whispering, do it, do it, do it. It was almost exactly 20 years to the day of that fateful concert in England when Hmm. Lennon was killed. Wow. One final eerie coincidence was the album cover of John Lennon's second album release, Imagine. In 1971, Rolling Stones magazine claimed the album art was John's self-portrait. Posed with John on his back, looking up into the clouds in the exact same manner as Mia Farrow in the poster of Rosemary's Baby. Oh, weird. The authors convinced Lennon also released his album on 9-9-1971, which adds up to numerology mm. 999. And we know that the occult always does the mere opposite. And there's power in the upside down of words and numbers. So you can imagine what 999 becomes upside down. 666. Yes. There is even a comparison of the particular style of lettering or font that was used in both the poster and the album. Without reading the book, I cannot say I'm convinced, but there's definitely an odd connection with the building and some really paranormal stuff happening here. Yeah, yeah. Today, the Dakota still houses an elite resident list and has turned away certain celebrities due to a strict building policy. Hmm. Madonna, Melanie Griffith, Cher, Billy Joel, and Carly Simon have all been denied residency there by a very selective board. What is it they don't like about those people? They're not saying. Several ghost hunters have tried to inquire regarding further hauntings, Mm -hmm. but due to its heightened security 
its upscale residence and privacy reputation, they have been unsuccessful with any further news. Wow, I had no idea there was such a rich history to that building. Isn't it amazing? It All is. the connections there. Yeah, it's like a spider web. Yeah, and people's lives being intertwined. Yeah. And, yeah, and there was an interview that I think uh, Paul McCartney had after Lennon's death. And in that interview, the screen just a blue streak started going across the stream, mm. the screen. Mm. And it was not an artifact of like the reception. Mm, really? Everybody saw it. Really? It was on everybody's screen. Wow. And some people say that it was the energy of Lennon there because oh. Lennon was always trying to communicate, they think, with Paul McCartney. Oh, really? Yeah. And then there was this one incident where. Lennon's son was doing like some sort of spiritual journey. Um, and one of the chiefs came over and handed him a feather and said, this is for you. And I guess there was some symbology with his dad oh. about feathers. His really? dad would either pick up feathers when they would walk together and mm. give it to him or uh -huh. he was obsessed with feathers. And so his son was like, this is definitely my dad mm -hmm. trying to communicate with me. Oh, wow. That's kind of yeah. cool. So I would like to read the book and, yeah. and see all of these uh is Yoko, is Yoko Ono still alive? I have no idea. Huh. wonder if she still lives in the Dakota. She might. They had a really lavish apartment there. So. I bet they did. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, that was a really super interesting story. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I, um, I hope you guys liked it. And I will link that book, too, in our credits. So if yeah. you're interested in reading it, I'm sure you can get a copy on Amazon. Yep. Or wherever you buy books. Wherever you buy your books. Well, that does it for us. We'll see you guys next week for our next set of scary stories for the month of October. Yes. Stay scared. All right. Bye. Bye. I don't know. I might keep my eye out for the bandage man no, while sweet. I'm down there. Oh, bandage man. Nostalgia. Yeah, I remember Aww. that. Oh, so many years ago. I know. that yeah. was. That's where it all started. It is. Bandage Cannon man. Beach. Kicked us off. That's right. <laughs> you know what we need? Hmm. We need some pie. We need some alcohol. Well, let's, we'll record this and then we'll have some pie. We'll have some pie. Okay. There was even a dedicated horse stable nearby. That's horse, not whore. I heard you say whore. I know all there is to know about the crying game. Remember that song? Mm -hmm. I've had enough of the crying game. As the flames die down, do remain undaunted. Though all hitchhikers are ghosts and all dolls are definitely haunted. Hey guys, be sure to follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at Fireside Phantoms. If you have a spooky story you would like to share with us, send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com and you may hear it on a future episode.